So this, so last week uh, we were here and kind of did an introduction to uh, this is what our, this class is going to look like and be like, and we're going to do some meditation, and talk about you know some recovery and some steps, and um, and I want to be really clear. Well, I was really clear last week, but I want to be really clear this week that even though I'm going to be bringing in the 12 steps and the 12 step concepts, um, I in no way. Uh, feel like this is a replacement for 12-step programs. Um, I feel like it's an augmentation. It's a complement. They complement each other well. So, just want to make that clear. Yeah. And actually, I'm going to talk a little bit about the first step and maybe touch on the second and third step uh, of recovery today. So the first step is we admitted we were powerless over our addiction and our lives have become unmanageable. So the things that stick out there for me are powerlessness. And I had a big problem with that when I first heard it. Powerless? Me? Never. Well, actually, yeah. And the unmanageability. It wasn't so hard for me. I could see the unmanageability, but the powerlessness was hard. And the admitting was hard. It's already true. I just wasn't really willing to admit it. And I think that's uh, that's a pretty key point. It's also a key point in Buddhism. Suffering is true. And I wasn't really ready to admit it. And when I admitted that I was powerless over drugs and alcohol and that drugs and alcohol or the craving for drugs and alcohol were the was the cause of a lot of my suffering then there was some freedom right there so the first step in, in uh, and you know I say I say the word addiction because to be honest with you alcoholism drug addiction food addiction sex addiction shopaholic codependent it's all the same It's about uh, uh, craving. It's about wanting things to be different and looking outwardly to change the way we feel. So it's important, I think, to and because when you get into there's you know there's, there's some aspects even in Buddhism there's 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 Tibetan Buddhism and there's Vietnamese Buddhism and there's Zen and there's this and there's that you know and there's some differences and there is some similarities. They're all pretty similar in the core teachings. So just to kind of mention that, you know, that within the 12 steps there's there's this seeming separation. But really it's in the it's at the root. And this is kind of why I love Buddhism because Buddhism really gets to the root of the matter, right? The idea So anyway, I I like to think of this idea of uh, one of many. That we are one of many, you know, and one of few. One of many meaning uh, one of many people who suffer from addictions. uh, Who suffer from uh, wanting things to be different. And few, and one of few, who actually are doing something about it. Are really willing to go against the uh, instinctual numbing that um, is so prevalent in our society. 
right? This is kind of the point. So to go against that, right? So yeah, so many people get clean, but few people, few people actually get in recovery. You know, it's rare. It's rare to actually work a program of recovery. Uh, I mentioned last week that, uh, uh, you know, 12-step programs are 66% effective over a 17-year study. Uh, So that means that 33% go back out and don't come back. 66 is a pretty good uh, success rate. It actually breaks down to 33% come into a 12-step program or recovery program and, and get it the first time. And and then 33% um, or maybe 34%, whatever that is, 33 or 34. No, 33% uh, come in and out a few times and then realize, are, are able to admit this first step, powerlessness and unmanageability. So many people come, I call them tire kickers. They come to spiritual practice. And they kick the tires. They breathe. Oh yeah, this feels great. And then they don't come back. Or they don't practice. It's not whether you come here or not. It's whether you actually pick up the practice. You know. So a little temporary relief. And then back in the fire. Right. This is common. Right? And the Buddha actually talked about... There will be few in every generation. There will be few in every generation with less dust in their eyes. Talking about how we're blinded by greed, hatred, and delusion. Otherwise known as uh, craving, uh, aversion or ill will, and ignorance. That we're blinded by that. That all humanity and people who <coughs> tend to be drug addicts and alcoholics are a little bit more, uh, maybe a little bit more dust in their eyes. You know, not, not not for any fault. It's just part of the habitual mind of using, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But so the so the Buddha talked about this right? that we have to kind of admit that they're suffering. Like this is the first noble truth. There is suffering inherent in this world. Acknowledge it. Yeah, no worries. Do what you got to do. And so that this that this um, practice and recovery goes against our natural um, tendencies, our instinctual tendencies to uh, seek pleasure and avoid pain. We're constant. We're kind of built that way to seek pleasure, and that can become craving to not feel pain. But pain is inevitable, and it's really a little bit more about so admitting that there's pain, you know, slash suffering. I'll talk about the difference between pain and suffering in a minute. But that there is pain in this life, and that people you love are going to die, and that you are going to get old. And that our bodies are going to fall apart. Just the way it is. That from our birth date to our death date. It's a mad dash. So coming to some acceptance of that actually can be freeing. Versus 
trying to ignore that for most of our life. So that's on the bigger truth. And then the, the kind of smaller truth is that there are hurts and mistreatments that we all have experienced, that we all will experience, and that's what we're calling pain. And when we attach to that or push that away, which we do, uh, some of us do it through drugs and alcohol, some of us do it through food, some of us do it through um, just numbing out, you know, just watching tons of TV or being on the internet all the time or working constantly. Right? It's the way of kind of numbing out. That when we do that, then we're we're um, we're kind of getting lost, you know, and we're not seeing clearly. So powerlessness and unmanageability, I think, are the key in the beginning of Buddhist practice and the beginning of um, of recovery. But, you know, I want to be really clear. Like, don't take my word for it, right? Investigate for yourself whether these are true. And actually, don't even take... This is something that uh, Noah Levine would tell me all the time. Don't take any any of this as ultimate truth. Don't... And, but let's, like, be open-minded enough to see that Buddhism isn't an ultimate truth. Right? The Buddha never said this is an ultimate truth. He said, this is a noble truth. Truth, nonetheless. But maybe not ultimate. Investigate for yourself. Don't take what he said, what he found, what he thought was true, what I say, what I found, what I think is true, as ultimate truth. Don't be blind in your faith. Find it for yourself. There's work to be done. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And even the 12 steps. Helpful. Not ultimate truth necessarily. So don't take it as ultimate truth. Investigate for yourself. Does it work? Right. And the program talks about contempt prior to investigation. Right? How often do we go, ah, whatever. So I saw somebody else try that. It didn't work out for them. Eh, it won't work out for me. <laughs> you know? So just a few thoughts about that. So powerlessness is seeing clearly the suffering caused by addiction. This is a way of looking at powerlessness. Seeing clearly the suffering caused by addiction. And that we continue to suffer as long as we hold on to the idea of feeling good all the time. I mean, how many people want to feel good all the time? Right? My hand is up. Maybe the opposite is true. Maybe people are afraid to feel good and actually are more more attracted to being to being unhappy or not feeling good. I'm so unworthy of feeling good and being loved and being happy that I actually seek out. This was me. I was this person. I seek out proof that I'm unworthy of love, <laughs> unworthy of happiness. So both things are true. Right? It's whether it's a, a craving to have it feel good all the time or uh, needing to constantly uh, push away any idea of happiness or well-being. I think drug addicts and alcoholics or people who suffer from addiction definitely are more prone to this one. 
So trying to feel pleasure and not pain, right? Avoiding pain causes suffering. Can be called uh, the suffering of suffering. And so here maybe they'll make a distinction between pain and suffering. Pain is unavoidable. It happens. People will die, leave you, you know, this, you know, we'll lose jobs, we'll get sick, whatever. Suffering is how we respond to the pain, right? And there's a classic Buddhist story of uh, someone being uh, shot by an arrow, right? The arrow being the pain of life, right? unavoidable, just got shot by an arrow, right? but then freaked out about it in such a way was like, you know, actually the, the arrow was poisonous, right? symbolizing kind of greed, hatred, and delusion being poisonous to us. And and so the Buddha or the, uh, the this this Brahmin, this uh, person was shot by an arrow. And was so concerned, doctors were there, people wanted to take the arrow, was so concerned about who shot the arrow, what the arrow was made of, what the kind of poison was, what kind of plant the poison came from. All of this had to be known before they could take the arrow out. Right? And so the, the, Buddha, the Buddha said, this is like taking another arrow and stabbing yourself with it. By causing more suffering for yourself. So I'm in pain. Oh, there's pain. We could attend to the pain right now. Or I could be so worried about what everyone, what everyone else is doing and what's happening in the world and, my, and, and, and how I feel about the pain that I cause more pain. Right? This is what the Buddha called dukkha, right? suffering. And can be avoided by just attending to that which is you know, maybe unpleasant or that which is pleasant. Same thing is true uh, the same arrow. It's an arrow of, of uh, a pleasant experience. Right? And then uh, the not wanting that pleasant experience to go. You know, um, again, my friend Noah Levine calls it rope burn, right? We get rope burn as we, as we hold on to that which is inevitably going to leave because that which arises passes away. We get rope burn when we try to hold on to it, keep it here. Oh, this feels so good. I don't want it to ever leave. Never, never, never. Right? Reminded of some cartoon about that girl who like has pets and like the pets are like running away and like jumping out the window because they're like, I'm going to love you and hold you forever and ever. You know, that's just that way of like being so obsessed with being happy that we hold on to it even though that which arises passes away is one of the truths of this world. So a little both sides, same same story of the two arrows. So the suffering of suffering, right? Only through having right view, in other words, seeing the four noble truths, which I'll get, you know, which are basically the four noble truths, are that there is suffering in this world, right? And that there is a cause to that suffering, and that cause is craving. Craving to numb out, craving for drugs, craving for things to be different than they are, craving to have things be good all the time. The Buddha called it tamha, right? meaning thirst. A thirst that can never be quenched. 
So attachment to wanting things to be different than they are, um, our lives become unmanageable as we try to control our lives and use substances to find release from the suffering. So that's kind of how the cycle begins. And then just to look out a little bit at, um, to kind of shift reference to kind of some of my addiction training is there's a, a way of looking at this called the cycle of addiction. Right? It's really the cycle of of the craving, yeah. of tanha. The cycle of our constantly seeking pain. And, I mean, constantly looking for relief. Right? Mental obsession. Physical compulsion. Use of a substance or a behavior. Right? From the use becomes craving, tanha. A little bit was good. I want more. Right? It's the addictive behavior. Right? So then from there comes negative consequences. Yeah. Or in the Alcoholics Anonymous, they actually call it spiritual bankruptcy. Right? It's continued. And then that cycle starts again and again and again. Because from the negative consequences, from the suffering caused by the continued use, then there, the, the, that's where the denial kicks in. Oh, well, if I do it differently, you know, maybe if I do it this way, it'll work out. Mental obsession again. Mindfulness practice, right there, is, is, that's where it works, right in the mental obsession. Right? The, the mental obsession is actually the beginning of craving. When we're, those of you who have been away from drugs for a while, or alcohol for a while, or the addictive behavior of choice for a while, the mental obsession will trigger by any number of things. A smell sometimes. I used to smoke crack cocaine. I still smell burning rubber. And I remember crack cocaine. Because that's what crack cocaine tastes like. The smell of burning rubber. And I'll go... And I'll... Bam! And it's a thought. Not an obsession. And I could see it as a thought moving through the mind. Because of a, a little bit of a... You know... Mindful awareness. Instead of... Oh yeah, God, I really remember that. And... Oh, maybe if I tried smoking crack again, it would be okay, right? <laughs> you know, because that happens for me. It happens for all of us. Now it's not crack cocaine, you know. Now it's like, you know, cheese. I have like, I love cheese. You know, <laughs> I was on a retreat and I tried to quit eating cheese. I was like, I don't know, maybe not eating dairy would be good for me. And then every day I would see cheese and I would be like. Man, there's a lot of cheese around. <laughs> and I would start obsessing on cheese. And it got so bad. I was so addicted to this. Because it's pleasurable. Melted. Mm. Mozzarella. I would go make. I would sneak into the kitchen. I worked in the kitchen. At this retreat I was on. I would sneak into the kitchen and make a little cheese pizza. So addicted. you know. And cheese became the symbol of desire for me. I mean, whether it's sex, or whether it's food, or whether, I mean, for me it was food, it was cheese. Whether it was, whether it's drugs, whether it's shopping, whether it's people, desire, craving, wanting. So we're actually powerless over everything that is happening to us in our lives. We're, we're actually completely powerless over everything that's happening to us in our lives. The one thing that we have power is our reaction to life. 
the one place where we gain a little control right away. It's like that, that idea in the first step of surrender to win. We have to surrender and admit completely. Yeah, what can you control? Really, can you control your mind? Did you just try? How did that go? <laughs> can you stay with the breath? I've been at this for, you know, 15, 20 years. Still hard for me. You know? But the reaction to it, that's where it matters. So in that mental obsession of, you know, cheese would be good or, you know, ah, beer, it's a nice hot day. Or whatever it is, whatever the drug of choice is. That will come fantasizing through the mind, floating through the mind. Ooh, pretty. Right? And then what do you do? By using mindful awareness, you know, seeing, oh, I see that that is a thought. Thoughts come, thoughts go. That which arises passes away. Craving, right? Even if it comes from mental obsession down into the soul of our being, the heart. Right? And I think about that way. The thought is coming through and then something reaches up and grabs it and pulls it down into the being. And that is obsession. That is where the craving comes from. This would make me feel better. So, yeah. Well, I guess, I mean, just the mindfulness is that piece of between the stimulus being the craving and the response or the reaction being physical compulsion to go out and get whatever it is you want to get. That there is a space right there between that and that space of a breath and you're training your mind your attention to pay attention to give attention to that breath so that you can create a a space and eventually it gets a little bigger and a little bigger and a little bigger you know and then that's where all of the freedom lies that's where happiness arises from being able to take that space and see what's true about it So this takes effort, practice, and training. The effort of continuing to come back to the come back to the breath, come back to come back to the body, come back to the group, go back to the meetings. It takes effort. You can't just sit at home in front of the TV and hope to uh, get spiritual freedom. Which both the 12 step programs, recovery programs, and Buddhism guarantee. They say actually that's, that's the goal. Both programs. It's why they're so connected. It's why they're so, one of the reasons why they're so um, complementary. Only spiritual practice can relieve our suffering. The Buddhist practice of awareness is the way to get the freedom from the craving. So intolerance of suffering motivated the Buddha to find liberation from it. So intolerance to the suffering. So that's that's like in admitting that we're powerless. Realizing before you even go to a, a, a whatever a meeting or before you decide to get clean, 
man, I'm really out of control. It's like that moment of clarity, they call it, in, in, in uh, recovery program. Moment of clarity. The step before the step. You know. Intolerance of our suffering. Motivated the Buddha to find liberation from the suffering, the cause. So this is the first and second noble truth. The third noble truth is that there is a way out. There was a cessation of suffering is possible. And it's through the steps. In Buddhism, it's eight steps. Actually, twelve. Four noble truths. Eight. Uh, the eightfold path. Twelve. And then in the twelve steps, it's the twelve steps. Right? Which really break down to three steps. Three actions. Getting right with, say, God. A God of your understanding. Right? I think of it as good orderly direction or dharma, truth, getting right with some kind of power greater than yourself, getting right with this uh, body-mind experience, getting right, in other words, looking inward and kind of cleansing out all the crap that we've been believing that runs through our mind while we're meditating, the mental moral inventory of meditation. Just sit long enough. Go on a retreat. You'll find out. It all comes back. Eight years old. Ten years old. Because we don't really just forget about that stuff that we're you know, taking drugs and eating food and having sex and shopping to try to numb out. None of it goes away. Right? So that's the second part of the, for, of the 12 steps is getting right with yourself. And then getting right with humanity is the third step getting right with others being you know one of many and one of few yeah so that's the buddhist challenge and that's that's the 12 step challenge too is to be free from your suffering can you do it are you willing you got the guts it's tough yeah, I, thought, I totally thought that was a bottle of booze. <laughs> it totally looks like a bottle of booze. Sweet. No, it's, it's all right. I was like, dude is suffering right now. <laughs> yeah, man. Good. All right. So how can we be at rest in our experience, whatever that is? This is the practice of meditation. How can we be at rest in our experience, whatever it is, painful, pleasant, <laughs> unpleasant, boring. Right? A friend of mine um, said, if you can't be bored, you can't be Buddhist. <laughs> because there's a lot of boredom. Because what is boredom anyway? It's the lack of seeking pleasure and the lack of, of uh, pushing away uh, unpleasant or painful. Right in the space there, they call neutral, is also what they call bored. 
And when we're so busy craving and seeking and grasping and pushing and shoving and pushing, then we don't ever get comfortable with what it is to just be. And so that's what Buddhism is pointing to. So the Buddha's great insight was to see that the pain, to see uh, the pain as a symptom of the greater underlying problem. That the answer was not to numb out, right, with chemicals or overwork or, you know, whatever. But to move beyond the disease itself. Right? To not, or to really look at the disease itself, not... And I, I don't even like the disease. Dis-ease is really what's true. Dissatisfaction. Suffering. Dis-ease. They actually call addiction a disease so that they can bill it. That's the truth. But it is. Affliction. It's genetic. Right? It's behavioral. I mean, there's lots of truth about what that means chronic, it's progressive, it's fatal. But also, it was was, uh, created so people could diagnose. The Buddha diagnosed the same problem 2,550 years ago. You know, craving causes suffering. The way out is to act right, live right. Have right view. Be able to be bored. <laughs> Not cause suffering. You know, looking at precepts. So I wanted to read a little bit about desire. I'm going to end in a few minutes. So from the Buddhist perspective, right? Uh, desire, the spell of enchantment. Of, of the wanting mind um, and the disillusionment. Looking at desire uh, as a path, as a passing phenomenon, right? Letting go of the grip of desire. This is our, this is our, our work. Letting go of the grip of desire. Can we feel the desire to, you know, for me it was cheese. Could I feel it? Allow it to arise and pass away. Great thing to practice with. It actually was really hard to do. I was able to, I, I got to a place where I could go cheese, cheese, seeing cheese, seeing the urge for cheese to arise, and then seeing it pass away. You know, one out of five times. Not really, actually, it ended up being a little, it was two, I had two months to practice that, so, you know. Letting go of the grip of desire. Dispassionate uh, means you know freedom from the confines of the wanting and grasping. So there's a lot of talk in in Buddhism about uh, uh, having the this dispassion for life, really dispassion for um, uh, uh, that which is true, dispassion for the the this body, right? Dispassion for craving. So there's the, the word dispassion. It was always it was off-putting, right? I was like, why would I want to be dispassionate about life? I want to love life, enjoy life, right? 
So it means freedom from the confines of the wanting and grasping. That's what it means. Like I could want my hair not to be falling out. But it is. And so wanting and grasping at that just makes it worse. Causes me suffering. So, I mean, that's just the truth. So to be free from desire is like being relieved of a heavy debt. This is uh, words of the Buddha, actually. The Buddha gave a simile that said desire or the agitating mind is compared to being heavily in debt. So think about the idea of like owing tons of money. Maybe some of you do. And it's kind of constantly weighing, but it's in the back of the mind. So being freed from desire or craving, wanting things to be different than they are, is like being relieved of that debt. Like someone just going, here's the lottery. The lottery of freedom. So... One of the last things I'll, I'll speak about tonight, well, we have some time, but is um, this idea around desire that in Buddhist uh, mythology and cosmology, they call the hungry ghost realm or the hell realm, which is the realm of addiction, really, craving, desire, wanting. And it's really a mind state, right? That's, that's the thing. Like, there's all this cosmology and you see, you know, you'll see all these you know, pictures of demons and, and it's all aspects of the mind getting, uh, you know, kind of put out so we can visually see it. So craving and addiction is the land or the realm of the hungry ghosts in Buddhist mythology and cosmology. And what, what the story is and what the, the, the visual is, is that these, there's these, these ghosts, these hungry ghosts, that have these huge bellies, right, and these tiny little throats, and that it's painful to swallow, and they're constantly hungry, and they eat and eat, and it's painful and causes suffering, and they're never full. Hungry ghost. Sounds like addiction to me. No matter how much we try. There and there's actually another. Description that I've seen where or heard where it's actually uh, that they have no elbows in this. Hun- there's a, a the, in the hungry ghost realm. There's this huge buffet of all this beautiful food, and they have no elbows, and so they have they're eating, <laughs> and they're just trying and trying and trying. Maybe get a little bit in, right? But never satisfied. You know, the one thing I love about that pit, that. Uh, story is that all they have to do is feed each other, <laughs> and it takes them, you know, a long time, if ever, right? Which is really what the program's pointing to, too, right? What the recovery program is pointing to is that really it takes a sangha, a community, you know, to help each other. The whole one addict talking to another addict—that's really what matters, right? So, but the hungry ghost, I but so I like both of those images. Um, but the, 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 the one that really looks like addiction to me is this big belly. You know, you should see they're like white and have these little heads, big bellies. And um, they're mostly found in some Tibetan imagery. 
and these tiny little red throats that are they're sore. They have like I don't know esophagitis or something. <laughs> and then uh, and then they they just keep eating and it's suffering and painful and they can't ever get enough. Tanha. Also known as the God-sized hole in the program. They call it the God-sized hole. That we're constantly looking for something to fit and we're putting drugs and alcohol and behavior and people and nothing fits. Right? It's all like putting a square peg in a round hole. Right? Just nothing fits. Until we find that which is true. Which is that you didn't need anything anyway. You just needed to excavate, excavate, to uncover that which is already true. Which is that you are already enlightened. You're already awakened. You're perfect. Just the way you are. This is the Buddhist teaching. But as long as we're constantly thinking that we're not. It's important there to look at ego though. Because if you're like, I'm perfect. Well, not really. Because form by its very nature, says the Buddha, form by its very nature is imperfect. Meaning this body, this group, this country, this world, imperfect already. But by accepting that is where the freedom comes from. Oh, I'm perfect just the way I am, which is imperfect. Right? So that's where the some of that freedom comes from, like to relieve some of that suffering. What else do I want to talk about? Buddhism is a clean and sober program. The Buddha was really clear. Taking in intoxicants will not lead to freedom. In the Theravadan tradition specifically, right, the, which is the teachings of the Buddha, uh, the direct, the narrow path, or the the uh, teaching of the elders, right, the, from from the Buddha's teaching, carried on into right here, right now. And so, to abstain from intoxicants and harmful drugs, right, that lead to heedlessness and that cloud the mind. And there are some different translations of that that have developed over the years, right? especially as Buddhism has come here to the West. Right? Which is like to be mindful of your consumption so that it doesn't lead to heedlessness and it doesn't lead to uh, uh, clouding the mind. But I don't know about you, but I could not do that. I tried you know, to just smoke a joint a day. Just one. There was this guy that I used to work with. He was a, a painter. I, I painted houses for years. I was a contract painter. And he, he was this old hippie guy, super cool. His name was Joe. And he'd pick me up in the morning, and he had smoked a half a joint. And he'd put it out in the ashtray. And then we'd work all day. And at the end of the day, he'd smoke the other half of the joint. And he did that every day. But he didn't have a problem, really. Because he, I was, I would always be amazed. He put it out. I was like, "Why are you going to put that out?" 
Or like when people have like half a beer and they like drink half it and they set it down and walk away. What, what are you doing? You know, like, because more is better in my mind. That's the difference between, you know, you know, heedlessness and clouded judgment. So it just fits really well. I mean, for me, I mean, I'm already, I was already clean and sober before I started meditate, meditating, you know. And my mind was clouded enough even without putting intoxicants in it. You know. I still had quite a bit of dust. And still do. So both the 12 steps and Buddhism offer spiritual solutions to suffering. With the 12 steps, it's external. Right? We're working a program externally. We're writing writing down steps and we're meeting with sponsors and we're going to meetings. And with Buddhism, it's internal. We're training the mind to sit with discomfort. Really, some would say, all of addiction is about being addicted to comfort. Can you be with discomfort? <laughs> it's hard. But that's really what it's about. So the internal uh, path of Buddhism is about trans- the transformation of our relationship to craving. So I think I'm going to stop there. And just know that there's more to come. First step. Second step. You know, we'll start talking about some of the other. I'm not going to necessarily go through all the steps one each week, but I'm going to I'm going to be talking about them as they interrelate to Buddhism. So, opening up for questions. Any questions about anything I said? Please. Let me just, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna listening. I'm just gonna turn on the light. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.